Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Uh, so hello, everyone, and welcome to the Public Health Power Hour, which is a weekly clubhouse meetup to discuss the relationship between personal health and public health. Public health means everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water. It means access to medicines and healthy food and places to get exercise. It also means supportive culture and removing barriers to health like bias. And it's never been a more important conversation. The COVID-19 pandemic has shown us that we have so much more to do to protect people's health. My name is Nana Young and I am the special assistant to the CEO on strategic initiatives here at Vital Strategies. Vital Strategy started this clubhouse community to learn more about different areas of public health and share different perspectives. We have a different focus topic each week, but we also want to look at the big picture. All speakers are participating in their personal capacity, and their statements and views on this show represent their personal points of view. We will be recording this show, so if you speak, please keep in mind that we may use your comments in a future recording. And each week, we like to warm up the room with the audience's help by asking our speakers and audience to share a story with a public health angle that caught your eye. So if you'd like to participate, participate please raise your hand and my colleague Steve Hamill will bring you up on stage. I'll get us started. Uh, I think today I'd like to spotlight a story of health equity and innovation that comes from Iowa. And while it's not breaking news anymore, I do feel like there's just too much promise and positivity here not to share. Uh, basically, a lot of us have used our time during the pandemic to pick up new hobbies or complete unfinished home projects. Well, um, in Iowa City, a 17-year-old named Deja Taylor has used her time to work on this notion of color-changing sutures or stitches that provide early detection for infections. And her specific focus is on surgical site infections in developing countries, which we know can be deadly if not discovered or detected early. There are several write-ups about this online if you're interested for the detail, but just to summarize, I think she, she, she talks about how she was inspired by, you know, this project, this concept that um, was being worked on by, you know, far more mature scientists using smart technology. But at that point, she felt like it wouldn't be really accessible to people who needed that in vulnerable contexts. So she wanted to innovate on that, con that concept using the natural chemistry of our skin, as well as the chemistry of beet juice. Um, and she now has mentors in her corner helping her to refine the technology. And my hope is that, you know, hopefully in the future we hear more about this pioneering young scientist. Um, and that's my little spotlight for today. So if we have anybody who wants to add or highlight another story, I will open the floor. Karen? Hey, everybody. 
Um, I saw something, you know, there's a lot of terrible news um, right now, and this was sort of a breath of fresh air, literally. This is on, um, I saw this on NPR, uh, on NPR's website, and it's about a, a school in North Carolina where the principal decided that a good way to transition from virtual back to in-person learning was be would was to do um, an outdoor classroom. And so he set up a classroom outside the school. They had you really have to see the picture. They had these desks that looks like look like logs. Uh, they started out with first graders and apparently the kids love it, the parents love it. Um, you know, it's really a beautiful idea. And one of the things they say is that the kids during class can hear birds and look at the sky and, and see all those things. And I think it's just such a nice idea, something that maybe COVID made us think about that um, wouldn't have happened otherwise. So um, I realize it's not easy for all schools to do, but I hope it's something that um, more schools will consider. Thank you, Karen. I believe our panelists also have stories they'd like to spotlight. If you'd like to go ahead, Dr. Boleg. Yes, sure. So um, whereas the previous two stories were um, instances of fresh air, I'm afraid I'm bringing stale, um, bad air. What caught my eye this week was an article in the New York Times. It was just two days ago, and it was spotlighting, I guess it's a special supplement that JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, has done on the topic of racial inequities in health. And what they find is the same thing that we found in in 2003 with the unequal treatment report that regardless of access to insurance uh, racial inequities in health still persist um, and so it's a pretty dismal report not sort of not particularly surprising. Um, I guess the good news was to see in the recap of some of the different articles references to structural racism and structural barriers, which is sort of a, a different angle than how we have historically addressed uh, inequities in health by race and ethnicity in the U.S. So that caught my eye this week. Thank you. Dr. Boleg is an award-winning social psychologist and an expert on behavioral science, intersectionality, and health. She's a professor of psychology at George Washington University and the founding director of the Intersectionality Training Institute. A formal welcome to you, Dr. Boleg. Thank you. So we wanted to, yes, no problem. We wanted to start by asking about your most recent research paper published in the Journal of Health Education and Behavior. The article itself is titled, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House, 10 Critical Lessons for Black and Other Health Researchers of Color. And I can't wait to get into the 10 lessons, but feel like we first need to zoom in on the word critical for a few minutes. Uh, the word critical has become somewhat of a lightning rod word, and I want to know from your vantage point why it's important to this field of study. Well, at the risk of being redundant, it's critical to be critical. Um, so basically, um, critical theories are just any that are focused on exposing 
challenging, interrogating the role of power in sustaining inequities, right? And so intersectionality is a critical theory. Critical race theory is a critical, is a critical theory. Queer theory, you know, and on and on. And so it's just so fundamental to bring that piece to it. Otherwise, we end up just talking about differences and without talking about the structural inequities that underlie them. So that's what I mean when I talk about critical. Sure. Um, great. I mean, before we get much further, I'd like to bring in our additional panelist, Dr. Nandita Murukutla, into the conversation as well. Nandita Murukutla is Vice President of Global Policy and Research and Vital Strategies Policy, Advocacy, and Communication Division, as well as a social psychologist by training. So, Dr. Murukutla, what does this discussion bring up for you? Um, I mean... So I, first of all, Lisa, it's, it's really nice to talk with you here, have this conversation. I thought your paper was just superb. Um, Thank and I'm, you. It was just, it was beautiful. Uh, and I just think and the body of evidence that you brought with the quote, with the quotes to substantiate the points you made, very moving. And um, to me, it is such an existential question, um, timeless, but also incredibly timely. And as a social psychologist, I'll confess that I love the sort of, you know, the comfort of science, the pursuit of knowledge and reducing it all into a set of simple principles, something that's predictable, There's something very beautiful about that exercise. But I think what your paper highlights and what this discussion highlights is that ultimately these research paradigms are based on a set of beliefs and values and hidden in there is power and um, a, a view of the world that's not always in the interests of all. And so breaking that down, I think, is, is crucial. And that is, the, that is what this conversation brings up for me, um, essentially questioning the so-called objectivity of science and data which it seeks to do, but isn't perfect, and um, questioning the very fundamental principles on which they're based, I think, is a, is a crucial exercise in, in the work we do. Thank you, Nandita. So I think we're ready to get into this article. Uh, Dr. Boleg, a central thesis of your 10 Lessons article is that Black and other health equity researchers need new and different tools. And in fact, the master's tools title references this. So can you please explain? Sure. So first, I have to give um, all kudos um, and praise to the indomitable um, Audrey Lord. It is from her work that I took, I took this title, the master's tool. So it's not, it's not my original um, work. Uh, title, it's hers. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, as so many of the assumptions that we use in research are centered on these sort of white, Western, cisgender, middle class and upper class um, perspectives. And we don't, we rarely question the methods that we're using, um, but we are quick to hide behind this sort of veneer that research is objective when we have 
ample evidence going back centuries that researchers has research has never been um, objective in many disciplines. In mine, I'm a social psychologist too, by the way. Um, the history of psychology, for example, is just replete with instances of psychologists using the objectivity of the science to prove at every turn how black and other people of color were inferior every you know uh, whether it was mental testing or i mean they, they had all these sort of brass instruments um there's this wonderful book on the history of psychology called even the rat was white by guthrie and it's a sort of historical r roadmap through psychology and how they would always use these these um brass instruments to measure facial features, comparing them always to the white standard and always coming up with the conclusion that people of color was, were inferior. And so we sort of see this over and over. And yet we teach you know, our students that, you know, this is how you do research, of course, is objective. And we use all these sort of really fancy and sophisticated methods um, that befuddle most people. And so most people just sort of accept the premise of it without questioning. And so what I wanted to do in this article was really sort of push the field to say, wait a minute, we need to, the tools that we have historically used are not going to get us there. And I think that's being borne out, um, even in the JAMA article that I talked about, or the Washington, the New York Times article, where, you know, you have researchers saying, my God, we're failing at this health equity thing. And I would argue, yeah, because we are using the same old tools and asking the same old questions. It's not surprising to me. Wow. Okay. So the idea that health equity researchers need new and different tools. Nandita, to what extent do you believe that this rationale resonates in context beyond the United States? Um, I, I, mean, I think it's fundamental just to be autobiographical about it again. Um, you know how people often talk about research as me-search, right? And years ago when I started to do my PhD and I'd come um, to the U.S. from India, the topic I was most interested in at that point was the influence of cross-cultural context. How does an individualistic versus collectivistic society, and that was one theory that sought to um, differentiate different cultural contexts, how does that influence how people think, feel, behave? And I think that sort of fundamental principle applies to so much of the work we continue to do um, within Vital Strategies with our partners um, in, in our you know, global health initiatives. Um, you know, some of the ways in which I thought uh, Lisa's article resonated with me, there's so many, I'll pick just a couple and I'm sure more will strike me as we engage in this conversation. But the research paradigm one was crucial. I think we've come to a recognition of the ecological context and how environmental features affect human behavior. So that's one piece of it. But we've not fully unpacked you know, what today is being called the political determinants of health. So what are some of the other structural political dimensions that have kept people where they are? And how, how does power influence people's own um, paths as well as outcomes and choices? And that's a field of study that I am particularly interested in examining in the context of our work. Um, and I think we've started to do more of that as well. And that's one of the things that I think 
we need to unpack more in the different contexts in which we work. The other other piece in, in this particular paper that struck me is we're often dealing with this tension of, you know, um, working across contexts and therefore trying to find ways to work across contexts, but at the same time trying to get depth and something does get lost in that tension. It's something that's, I think, described in the paper, but certainly something we experience. And in that tension is another layer, which is that the depth that's resultant from qualitative methods, which I, I completely agree is a very rich and important initial immersive way in which to engage with an issue is also not only hard to do, but hard to sell. Most people that we we work with as, um, you know, as an advocacy organization or as people implementing um, health programs is dealing with doctors, those in, in public health communities to whom selling qualitative data, anything that's not reduced to numbers can be a challenge. And so these are some of the um, issues described in the article that apply beyond any single context. They seem to be fairly universal and uh, finding new ways to, in fact, you know, because I, I, I do also like um, the exhaustion to serve the vision, <laughs> finding ways to serve the vision through new ways and, and perhaps struggling through those new ways um, is certainly something that we should do. And um, I'm you know, looking forward to the discussion of what may be some of those solutions. Thank you, Mandita. Um, you put the idea or theme of tensions on the table, so I'd like to, to run with that for just a second here. I think um, tension is a recurring theme throughout the um, article as we explore the lessons. Um, and, and so there, there are many um, touch points here, but the one that stuck out to me that I, I'd love to start off with is that tension, Dr. Boleg, that you describe of being in an environment but not of it. And also the tension um, for some of trying to be, whether it's a practitioner or an academic um, versus being an activist. Um, so I'd love to hear you speak more to the idea of academic activists. Is that something you would consider yourself as? And if so, to what extent did um, you know your pursuit of tenure shape your evolution as an academic activist? And then after that, we can... Um, explore other tensions that are, are, are raised in the article. So, Dr. Boleg. Okay. Well, sure. I, I would describe myself as an as an activist, um, you know, again, within the academy, which is not much to write home about because, I mean, it's, you know, there are ways that the academy is, or at least has been for me, a very sort of safe space, right? And so the risks have not been... Um, you know, that's serious. And so I, I really have great respect for activists who are sort of, you know, community-based activists, people who take it to the street. And so I don't see myself in that, in that um, category, but certainly um, I see my work as an activist. I guess, you know, the, the, when you say you're in it, but not of it, very much in the piece, I included different lyrics and quotes that inspire me. And that of that one comes from the great Stevie Wonder in the song As. And that 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 has always just sort of stuck with me. Like, you know, can you really say that you are tr trying to advance equity within institutions that were not 
built for that and have assiduously um, fortified themselves in many ways um, against equity. And so that's what I mean, you know, to be the tension for me is somebody who takes government money. My my um, research is funded by that much of my research is funded by the National Institutes of Health, for example. And so what does it mean to take that money to do research in service of social justice and and equity within an in, another institution, in this case, the federal government, that also has not been set up um, to promote health equity. So that's so that's something that I, I you know, I wrestle with a lot, you know, um, about compared with people who are doing more sort of community based grassroots health activism and, and doing sort of citizen science in ways that can really make palpable, tangible change. And so that's the te- that's the tension that I'm I'm always sort of dancing on both sides of that of that tension. Sure. Uh, and I think, you know, I just want to put out other tensions that I saw rise through the article, you know, this uh qualitative versus quantitative tension. This, you know, uh, formal funded institution versus the community-based or grassroots organizations. Um and Nandita, I, I, I don't know if there were any other tensions that you wanted to flag, but I think that you know, a part of the importance and the power of this article is actually giving Black and other um, health equity researchers of colors some sort of, you know, tools, you know, your tools, your 10 lessons are a mix of philosophical approaches and practical application. And so for those who might be reading, um, are there a few that you would say are the most important, Dr. Bolek? Ooh, that's a hard one. I mean, I, I think they're all. <laughs> I think they're all important in different ways. You know, I think it, it's 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 just disappointing to me that in 2021 we could still be talking about qualitative research as if it's something so innovative and ground and groundbreaking, right? Um, you know, but but it is. I mean, the qualitative class that I teach in the psych department is the first one that we've had in a department that's over 100 years old. And so I think that's one. Um, I think about the learning research paradigms. Um, that's not something that most people even get in traditional social and behavioral science programs. Um, that, you know, so I think that that's important. I think the the point about not keeping white people comfortable and not holding our tongues about inequity and structural racism and and intersectional stigma and discrimination is another one. I mean, I, I you know, oh, clearly I'm biased. I wrote the piece. Um, I think they're all important, but those are some that, you know, just sort of jump out at me. But, and I guess, and of course, serving your vision, doing really what's true to you. And, you know, that's something that I've really been quite steadfast um, at, you know, even even as an early career um, professor and even as an assistant professor, it's like, OK, no, I I got to do this my way. I, I you know, I, I just am not willing to compromise in um, in a path that might be easier. Um, I, I have to serve my vision in terms of what it means to be an activist or a critical psychologist. Um, so those are some of the take some of the takeaways. Sure. Thank you. So. I guess my next question is, you know, Vital Strategies is home to public health practitioners, right? So beyond these lessons, how can these public health practitioners do more to integrate these critical perspectives into our work? Um, We have a very diverse and robust portfolio, but there's always work to be done to, to 
integrate the health equity framework and, and, and incorporate critical perspectives along the project life cycle or the initiative life cycle. So I'd love to hear your, your, your feedback or opinion here. So I, I think my initial re response to that question would be that the answer to what practitioners can do is not necessarily an individual level question. It's, it's not about what this individual practitioner can do, but it's about the whole sort of system that fosters inequality and for practitioners to engage with the systems that they work in. So one of my um, current projects is I am developing measures of multi-level intersectional stigma for um, Black, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. Um, in And we, we did um, interviews with men in Jackson, Mississippi. So these are black, gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men in Jackson, Mississippi, and Washington, D.C. And we wanted to understand what are the multi-level barriers that they face with getting PrEP or HIV testing. And it's and we're still very much um, analyzing the data to develop the quantitative measures. But what they're talking about, they're talking about their interactions with healthcare providers, right? Whether it's the healthcare provider who's rude and dismissive the one who doesn't tell them about PrEP, the one who, who knows about PrEP but is not going to mention it um, because they because of their the provider's own stereotypes, assumptions about whether gay men are promiscuous and all of that. And so I'm very much interested in looking at those types of interactions at a structural level because what we typically do is we just put it on the individual and we say, you know, well, this individual provider just needs to learn this and this and this. But what are the policies in that environment that help explain why these things happen and why these things only are happening to these people. They're not happening in the same way to the white, gay, and bisexual men. What is that about? And how do we deal with that at every single level from the time it's a black man shows up for care, from the time they set foot onto that facility, that clinic, whether they're engaging with the security guards, whether they're engaging with the receptionist, what's, what's happening in that waiting room? What's the dynamic when the practitioner comes out to greet them? You know, I, all of those things are not, in my mind, individual level pieces, but they're a whole part of a larger structure that help explain the inequities we see. And so I think there, there's a need for um, practitioners to, to gain um, what um, I think this article that I love, I think it's Metzl um, and Hansen, uh, Hansen, I think is the other author, this sort of structural competency that helps sort of explain so many of the inequities in healthcare. So that, that would be my, my sort of gut um, response to your question. Thank you, Dr. Boatleg. I, you know, as you were speaking, I, I, I was thinking because I, I want to bring in some of our, the work we do every day at Vital Strategies to, to kind of unpack a little bit and it ties back to that theme of, of tension we touched on earlier. You know, we have this um, active, you know, pandemic going on. We're trying to control those. But that doesn't mean that, you know, some of the other leading causes of death in this country fall to the wayside. And it's that tension of trying to respond to both um, emergencies um, in, in an efficient way with limited resources. Um, and that brings me to um, uh, an area of our portfolio focused on um opioids, right, the opioid epidemic. And I think we've seen in this country a shift in how we respond to opioid use, abuse, um, and the growing epidemic um, historically. And I would like to know to what extent you believe critical perspectives played 
and that shift in response? Did they play a role? Or what more could be done when it comes to being critical um, and, and, and inserting a health, a health equity framework in response and control? Well, several things. One, um, I'm struck by how siloed health is in our approach, whether it's research or interventions, and also our funding for research, right? Yes. So it's substance abuse over here, HIV over here, mm-hmm. diabetes over here, COVID over there. And, you know, looking at all of these intersectionally, and so sort of through a sort of structural critical lens, um, from my vantage point, these are all connected. There are sort of structural fundamental reasons that help explain why, I mean, you know, pick one, pick a, pick a health, pick a disease disease or condition and why people who are at the intersections of the most historically marginalized groups, where we're talking about race and ethnicity, sexual and gender minority status, immigrant status, class, whatever it is, why are those groups are going to get the worst of whatever it is? So that's number one. And I think, you know, a, a critical perspective invites us to look at all of these in a much more holistic rather than siloed ways. Um, as for opioids, um, the reason why the country got really interested in them was because then white people started to be most affected, um, disproportionately affected by the opioid crisis. Um, there was not much interest in um, opioids um, when it was seen as predominantly black people and that, oh, you know, those drug users and the war on drugs. And so I think, you know, that also explains explains the shift in tone, because when it was people of color and drugs, the solution was, oh, we're going to lock them up, we're going to put them in jail. Uh, When it became, you know, uh, white people's neighbors and their friends and their family members and their sons and daughters, it was then, oh, we need a much more compassionate response to addiction. And so I think, again, you know, these critical perspectives invite us to sort of challenge all these different assumptions and and tell us, well, okay, what, what changed here? Same, you know, same substance, same outcomes. Why is it when it's affecting this group that we are more than willing to marshal all of our resources to deal with this problem in ways that we did not when it was, um, you know, black and brown uh, people? Sure. Um, and and Nandita, I, I want to um, you know invite you to interject as as you feel. Um, but moving on to my next question, Dr. Boleg, you you're a well-established expert in the field of health equity. Um, so again, is there something different about this moment that we're sitting in um, since the death of George Floyd and the focus on equity, particularly when it comes to racial equity? Well, I mean, the conversations are happening. There, there, we can, there's no way to deny how seismic um, and cataclysmic that event, um, the George Floyd um, event, was um, for most of the country. Um, you know, and of course, the, a lot of that has to do with the fact that it was captured on video. But if you ask communities of color, poor communities who sort of suffered from, you know, sort of police violence and injustice historically, they would say, oh, yeah, we're not surprised. I mean, so there, it, it has sparked all types of conversations about um, racial inequities. And that's clearly that that's a good thing. Um, and I think what I find um, important is this sort of shift slow shift, but a shift towards the structural and asking, okay, how are these sort of policies, laws, how's the legacy 
of slavery, residential segregation, how do those impact the inequities that we see? I learned in that New York Times article that I talked about that um, hospitals um, in the U.S., they did not, they were desegregated in 1966. And so, you know, and that's when they were threatened with the loss of Medicare funds. And so that is such recent history that sort of helps explain so much. And so it's that as we focus more on structure and history and policy, I think that I think these are really, really important conversations that I hope will lead to more equitable approaches and outcomes. Thank you. I'm you know, just thinking about current events and where we are um, in um, the pandemic, Dr. Boleg. I think an important part of this response, of course, is a vaccine compliance. And there are some roadblocks there, right? Some challenges. And I, I would love to have you walk us through, you know, part of the complication, the complexity of doing that, why there is some um, lower compliances, especially among minority um, communities, and how critical perspectives towards health equity um, can help um, revitalize some of the vaccine response and adherence. What are we getting wrong? Um, you know, just to help us walk, walk us through, um, shed some light here. Well, yeah, there are definitely differences in compliance, but let's also be clear that research has also shown that the one of the largest groups of people resistant to getting the vaccine are white Republican people. Yeah. That's that's documented. And so I think that's mm -hmm. really important because I think if, if we keep this narrative, it's easy to then find ourselves in the narrative like, oh, God, these people of color, what's wrong with them? They won't get the vaccine. And it's so much more complex than that. And structure, again, and critical perspectives invite us to think about those. And so I did, I wrote a piece about... Um, you know, where I, I think I titled it, we're, we're not all in this together or something like that. It was a piece I wrote for the American Journal of Public Health, and it was on intersectionality and COVID-19. And I think that intersectionality has so much to bring to COVID and, and particularly vaccine um, compliance or whatever we want to call it, because one of the first principles of, you know, intersectionality and also critical race theory is the importance of centering the experiences, the needs, and the concerns of groups who are most marginalized or historically mm -hmm. marginalized in multiple intersections. And if you do that, that takes you right away to, okay, what are the policies that we, or practices that we need to to put into place to, to ensure that everybody has access to these vaccines in the same way. Not everybody has a car. Not everybody, you know, can get to that. They, they have to right. work. And so they can't get to the vaccine dis dissemination place. So what, are, what ways can we take vaccines to different communities? What type of community-based um, education from trusted people who look like the people we're trying to serve. There's just so many different principles. And we arrive at a different place when we start with what are the needs and experiences of the groups that we're trying to reach. Who are their trusted uh, organizations? Who do they go to? Who looks like them? Who speaks their language? Um, all of that. And typically what we do is a very sort of top-down model where we make assumptions about health, whether it's vaccines, whatever it is, um, from privileged resource groups, people who have computers who can get on and find a vaccine slot. Right. Um, there's so many of those sort of assumptions that sort of help explain, you know, this mess we're in. Um, 
I live in um, Philadelphia, and there it was a uh, there's a physician here, a black woman, who decided to start a, a group called the like um, Philadelphia Black Black Doctors Coalition. And it was just amazing to see what they did because just in my neighborhood, they just had signs up, free free testing, taking the resources to the people that I got my vaccine through them, um, at, you know, mm-hmm. and Temple. And so it's it's that those types of community based approaches that I think um, hold the hold the lessons for how we deal with this and other public health challenges. Thank you, um, Dr. Bolek. Nandita, at this time, I'd love to hear your take on how global perspectives have evolved or how at Vital we've tried to, um, you know, incorporate community-based approaches to kind of in furtherance of strengthening health systems and responding to some of the, the tensions we've discussed throughout this conversation. Um, thanks, Nana. I mean, I think one thing I'm proud of in the work we've done is, um, in fact, especially as we've sought to work on, you know, health behaviors and, and uh, work on uh, reducing non-communicable or other diseases by addressing behaviors that are perceived to be risky. Our perspective has very much been about looking at the ecology, the environment, and the other factors that influence uh, people's behavior. And I'm, I'm proud of the colleagues, um, some of them on this call, I can see who've really led the work on commercial determinants of health. And I think that's been a very important way of addressing um, the root causes of of inequity as well as poor health. But there's more we can do, I think, in particular, studying power, power dynamics, political systems in the varied countries in which we work, and in particular, connecting to those um, you know, thought leaders in the countries in which we work that understand this well and can um, guide us on how best we support local movements that are seeking um, really to improve improve the health of communities that are otherwise, um, you know, uh, subjugated by these commercial determinants and other interests. I think that's one one definite future direction for our work. Um, the other, I would say, is around expanding our information sources. Data is, of course, one, but there's other forms of evidence. And we've talked about qualitative data here. There's social media. There's other sources of information to guide us in um, understanding an issue. Because I, I I take that point that if there's no data, there's no problem. And I think that's a, it's a crucial um, lesson or, an, or a crucial piece of advice to keep in mind. But along with that is also democratizing that information and making it available and looking to more ways to do that. Uh, The publishing process is just as, you know, corporatized for the lack of a better word. It's hard to publish, hard to, um, it's expensive to gain access. Really, we should be looking at other ways to make information available. And, you know, I think efforts like this, um, again, started by colleagues at Vile Strategies with Clubhouse events like this, other narrative forms of telling the story of um, the data, the information we have, I think is powerful and important. And I'll just conclude with one sort of comment as well as question. I thought the, you know, the, the, um, 
point around language was really important um, in your article, Lisa, you, the, how we frame problems and solutions in the language we use as well as inherit um, and really questioning the language we use, I think, is is powerful and also so insidious because it's hard, especially when we're often working in languages not our own, to really understand historical context and meaning. And I think that's a really powerful um, powerful and subtle uh, thing to keep in mind. I also love that point about citations and looking at whom we cite and whom we as a result erase um, through our citations. And I wondered if, Lisa, I could ask you um, to expand more on that because um, this issue of language and really studying that carefully, knowing to unpack power in languages is, is I, I think, a really important point. And I wondered if you could expand on that for us here. I'd be happy to, but I guess I, I first have to say that I, I'm so flattered with um, your grasp of this of this article. I, I you know, I, I write articles and I, I sort of put them out in the world, and I'm really sort of passionate about them. And then after they're out in the world, I'm like, oh yeah, what did I say? What did I say? And so it's it's wonderful hearing what I've written reflected back to me. And so I, I'm just grateful. Um, for um, I'm grateful to know um, that you found this this article resonated so much with you. Um, I think language is critical. I you know I often think that if, if, in another life I probably would have been a linguist because I'm just sort of fascinated by language and how language helps construct. Um, reality in many ways, how we see problems. And so, you know, one of the, 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 the most simple example is how we have historically used race, the word race, as the reason we, we talk uh, the reason for um, inequities. We talk about, you know, racial differences and we put, we implicitly then put the problem on race rather than the racism, that it's discrimination and prejudice based on race that is the problem, um, particularly racial and ethnic minority status. And so, th so that's one reason why language becomes important, because if then you're only talking about, you're only looking at racial differences as the explanation for these inequities and you find differences in race, then you're done, right? And you're not asking more crucial questions that can get to interventions um, to improve the situation. So that's that's that. Um, in terms of citing, citing is so important. I say in the article that it's the intellectual currency in the field, right? If you're, you're not going to get a grant um, without them seeing uh, citations to your work. But it's also, it's the sort of absence of citations, particularly of the work of scholars of color that I see um, to be particularly problematic. And in the piece, I give the example of the, it was the um, Institute of Medicine, um, yeah, Institute now called National Academy of Sciences, and they did this report in 2011 where they, um, you know, they proposed intersectionality to be this cross-cutting framework to inform research on health research on lesbian, gay, and bisexual health, right? Fantastic, of course, yeah, I'm all, all there. But then when you look for the citations 
to intersectionality and the sort of black women who have really, you know, who are at the forefront of the Kimberly Crenshaws, the Patricia Hill Collins, Audrey Lorde. I mean, so many black women had have talked about intersectionality, albeit not using that term, but really talking about how these sort of intersecting forces of discrimination um, shape the lives of black women. None of them are cited in the report. The, the report gets cite, finds a conference presentation, which in and of itself is interesting because typically we cite in the field, we cite published work, um, ideally peer-reviewed, but published, but a conference pr um, presentation by a white Swedish professor. And so that tells you something about how Black women's intellectual contributions are sort of undermined and obscured and ignored. And so that's why, and I, I cite in this paper this whole uh, movement about cite Black women because there's research showing that they're much more likely, less likely to be cited compared with white women. And so I encourage people to cite scholars of color. And if you're a scholar of color, be sure to cite yourself in your work. I think it's so important. Oh, man, I am so happy we got to unpack and tease out so many different elements of these lessons. And Dr. Bolak, I, I do want to say that I appreciate the thoughtfulness um, that you brought to the mix of philosophical approaches versus practical application. And this final element that I, I want us to touch on really resonated um, with me, this um, lesson around self-care, which in my notes I have, you know, AKA rest as revolutionary, because it's a theme I think I've personally observed um, just crop up several times, especially during the pandemic. I mean, most recently there was evidence of the backlash when Simone Biles, um, for reasons around self-care, decided to step away from the Olympics. So we can talk about that. I mean, I think as a professional, COVID-19 has highlighted the importance of self-care and um, drawing one's own guardrails and, and boundaries when you have to bring your work home during lockdown. Um, and then also just being in that tension of professional activists and, and trying to um, advocate for social justice, but knowing when to um, step back to avoid burnout. I, I see many of my colleagues who are at risk of burnout trying to push these issues and also, um, you know, be present in their in their daily um, professions. And, you know, it's hard to kind of accept that sometimes temporarily stepping away from that work is an essential part of the self-care that you recommend. So I'd love to hear you expand here. Are you familiar with the work of the Nat Bishop, Trisha Hersey? She I'm not. Oh, you must, must, must Google her. Just Google sort of Nap Bishop. And she's, um, there's this wonderful podcast I can send later for you to put in the show notes of her yes. talking about rest as resistance and rest mm -hmm. as revolutionary. And she got so interested in this because she was very much interested in the histories of enslaved people and finding out that if they slept at all, they slept, you know, three hours a night and started to really incorporate this, this notion notion of nap and resting and how important it is, particularly for activists who are, you know, subject to sort of a high rates of burnout. So yeah. I really want to, in, in, in line with what you're talking about, rest is revolutionary. But yeah, no, I'm a practitioner of radical self-care. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's as simple as on the airlines. You can't, you have to put on your, your mask first and you simply cannot do the work that needs to be done um, if you're depleted. Um, and so it is a really radical Radical act for people to take, you know, uh, Audre Lorde talks about it as sort of self-preservation. And it's why I was so 
just proud to see Simone Biles, you know, at yeah. here she is at the pinnacle. The world is looking at her and she just says, uh-uh, no, it just, yeah. um, and we need, we need more of that. We just, so yeah, I'm always talking to my, my mentees about, yeah, work hard, but you got to rest hard too. Uh, really trying to strike that balance. It's just fundamental to the work, I think. Sure. And, um, it's, I think it's a mantra that I, I continue to reflect on in my own, um, you know, life. And I try to encourage uh, among my peers, um, you can't pour from an empty vessel. Um, and, and like you said, sometimes depending on the context, it, it really could be an act of resistance. I think as our hour winds down, it's a good time to just open up the floor for questions or comments from our audience. So, if you do have a question or a comment from the audience, please raise your hand. And my colleague, Steve, is more than happy to bring you up on stage to ask. I'll start with my own question while people are thinking. Dr. Bullock, I mean, one of the things that struck me about your article, uh, in addition to the incredible, you know, philosophical and technical points, like, I felt like the spirit of it was, there was sort of like, a love letter to other Black and uh, health equity researchers of color. And I was really struck by um, something which is really unusual in this kind of channel of publication is like, you know, how you're drawing upon your personal experience and, and also like attempting to, it seems like almost encourage others to take their, their place of power to to, you know, find their, themselves and their power and, and sort of seize it in a way that you have in your career. And I, I just thought that was striking. And maybe um, you'd like to comment or, or, or comment on that. That's such um, that's a very insightful comment, because that is how I have described the piece. And as I was writing it, I felt like it was a love letter. Um, you know, I have the privilege of having lots of mentees or people seek me out, you know, back when you when you could speak in person, you know, people would come up to me afterwards, particularly early career scholars of color, and and I talked to them. And so, so much of what I wrote was about the types of conversations that I'm engaged with with early career scholars of color all the time about their struggles. And so it was very much in that that spirit that I wanted to impart. And I think that because I, because I can do it now, I, I am a full professor. I don't have to worry about this. This is sort of the privilege of this perch. And so I wanted to, um, you know, extend my hand to people who are where I was as an early career professor and say, yeah, yeah, it's scary, but come on, keep, keep coming. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's frightening, but come on, come on. And it was very much in that spirit. Like it's, it's worth doing. It's worth doing. Come on. And that's, you know, and, and it's been really gratifying because from the minute this article hit, the emails started coming about professors telling me about their different struggles and how this article, you know, was sort of like a lifeline for me. And so, yeah, very much a love letter from a senior scholar to the, the next generation. Thank you for that comment. Mm -hmm. Justin, you're on stage. Hey, thank you so much, Steve. Uh, and Dr. Bolek, I just wanted to ask you, um, I'm working on a project here in Chicago, and I was interested in if you, if, if someone from the, um, the leaders of this could put together, like, do you have by a compendium of what are, how are cities actually 
tackling racism. So here in Chicago, our mayor in June recently declared that racism is a public health crisis. And so the question for a lot of us has been, what does that mean institutionally? How do we look at agencies and target policies and regulations to affect change? And so I was just wondering, given the, the, the brain trust on the stage, where can I be looking for resources to say in these places, this is happening in this place that is happening? I know that on the American Public Health Association website, there is a project, I don't know, sort of pending, but there's information on their site where they have been collecting all of these different sort of statements and ordinances about racism as a public health issue. But I, you know, I presume, but I don't know that that might be the next step, right? Because I'm with you like, okay, yeah, you said it. And? Um, you know, what does that look like? You know, what, what does that look like on, on the ground? What, what are the initiatives? What's being done other than a feel-good statement that's performative? You know, in, in, or my, my take on it is, okay, you said it, that's great. But unless you have sort of policies and strategies, then it's just sort of performative. So I would go there um, because I do know that they have on their website, they've been keeping a tally of these different um, state or city ordinances um, in that regard. Any other comments, questions? Oh, I see somebody else, Karen. Um, hi, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. Um, the question about how to disseminate research is something that interests me a lot. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if there were three things that we could do to improve the way we disseminate research to the people that the research affects, um, what would you recommend? I would recommend, um, actually, I should say that in my role, I'm the um, director of the Social and Behavioral Sciences Corps of the DC Center for AIDS Research. And this is really um, seminal to the work we're doing. We're working now in conjunction with community partners on a best practices guide for community-based research, particularly in academic partnerships. And dissemination is one that they talk about um, and really have lambasted um, academic researchers about um, because we, we just write to and disseminate our research to other academics you know, publications. And so one of the things is um, working very closely with community partners and disseminating and making sure that they are involved in dissemination efforts, whether that is through the community papers, through social media, whether um, community partners are present to present results back to community, having um, requirements that, so one of the things we're working on the CIFAR is teaching our researchers about how to write in different ways to disseminate research back to communities. So it's not just about the peer-reviewed publications, but it is about sort of showing up to um, community health events. It is about op-eds. It's about using social media, but basically, most importantly, it's about having the communities tell us what are the best ways to disseminate research. And of course, we need them because we, you, I mean, if you show up with all your academic language, well, that's, I mean, yeah, you're there, but that's not going to help. And so it's really about the sort of close engagement with community partners about how you disseminate work in different ways and that it not, must not just be written and it must be in other languages, for example. I wanted to go back um, to thank Justin for his 
his question. Um, I'm glad there is, you know, a leading resource that he can follow up on. But I think his question and comment, you know, just to respond to that, I think that there, the gap between a public declaration of racism as a public health issue and actually implementation on the ground is, is a journey. Um, and it, it takes a lot of, um, you know, meaningful investment to make that a reality. And, you know, what I've observed in, in public health is that, you know, there's this like roadblock between being able to respond the same way you would to, uh, you know, an infectious disease or cancer. But when it comes to racism, minds turn blank. And I think this article, you know, articulates that where our traditional public health tools, um, maybe they need some updating. We're going to need some different kind of thinking and, and, and some cleansing of our lenses to be able to meet this with the response that it needs as a public health issue. Um, and that will require new partnerships. Um, it, it can't be maintained or maybe change won't be driven by our traditional institutions. And so I think it's important to explore that landscape, um, be very intentional, invite people, share the resources, new modes of communication. We have social media, we have new influencers. So I'm hoping that the progress, you know, includes this crosscut, this intersection um, of community that we've created, like, you know, as is the case in this power hour. Um, so I just wanted to leave that on the table as well. If I may add to that, I, wa I wanted to say I am increasingly convinced that the change that we need is not necessarily going to come in a top-down fashion. I think we look sure. to the Black Lives Matter movement as an example of just, you know, transformative change um, in, in a very different way um, than we've seen historically. Um, and so it really is about these sort of community-based and grassroots movements. I think that's right, Dr. Bullock. Uh, at this time, I want to um, open up the floor to both of our panelists um, in case they have any concluding remarks. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, and uh, thank you for organizing it. Thank you, Lisa, for joining. And um, no concluding remarks except a lot of reflections and, uh, you know, continued conversations, I hope. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about these ideas. I think they are so important in terms of sort of stimulating and getting us to where we need to be in advancing health equity for all in this country. Thank you all. Thanks to the both of you, our panelists, our engaging audience, um, the support team behind this event. Um, I just hope that we can have you back on Public Health Power Hour in the future. Um, and we like to close out each week with something you can do to, uh, uh, to advance public health please do go ahead, follow up, and um, Google Dr. Bolek's article. Those lessons are incredibly helpful. Find one that resonates with you and practice it in your own profession and personal life. Again, thank you to everyone for being part of today's Public Health Power Hour, and have a wonderful day. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at Vital Strat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.